0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, aging is a natural part of life. Yet most of us are living longer, healthier lives. So what will old age look like in the future? And what scientific breakthroughs will slow the aging process?
1: Life expectancy in the the countries in the world that have the highest life expectancy has been going up by about three months per year every single year since the middle of the 19th century. So it's this absolutely phenomenal increase. You've gone from about, as I say, sort of 30 or 40 years old to 80 years old in much of the developed world. And what that means is that we've effectively doubled what it means to be human.
0: And later, the value of wisdom in growing older.
1: Wise
2: people learn important life lessons throughout their life, which then helps them in old age when difficulties might be piling up um, because of losses, physical losses, social losses,
0: The science of staying alive and the wisdom of accepting our mortality. All ahead on Life Examined. These days, living into your 80s or 90s would be considered a good long life. This, by the way, is way longer than it used to be in previous centuries, thanks mostly to modern medicine. But imagine if we extended that timeline, say living to be 120 or 150. How does that sound? Is it appealing, exciting, scary, confusing? Our first guest says, like it or not, we're on the edge of some amazing scientific breakthroughs when it comes to aging, and that revolutionary new medicines might not only slow the aging clock, but also make us feel and behave more youthful. Andrew Steele is a scientist and author of the new book. It's called Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Andrew Steele, welcome to Life Examined.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Let's talk about a, a little bit about about your personal interest in in aging, how we slow aging and some of the big questions around it. Can you talk about what drew you to this subject? I'm interested.
1: I actually changed career because of a graph. I started out as a physicist and I was coming to the end of a PhD in physics when I saw the graph of how likely you are to die depending on how old you are. So it's got a morbid reason to change your career, I guess. And what you notice is that this graph, it's an exponential increase. So your risk of death doubles about every seven or eight years as a human being. Mm -hmm. And That means that I'm in my thirties. I've got something like a one in a thousand chance of not making my next birthday. But that carries on doubling and doubling, and it you know, doesn't go very far for a few decades. But then at a certain point in life, maybe in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s, those numbers are starting to get big. So if you're lucky enough to make it to 80, uh, your odds of death that year are about 5%. And if you make it into your 90s, your odds of death in every, any given year are about 1 in 6. That's life and death at the roll of a dice. Now, as a human, you can look at that exponential increase and think, <laughs> that is terrifying, you know, I've got this wall of mortality coming at me. But as a scientist, you look at that, and it's just fascinating because human bodies seem to go wrong in such a coordinated way and it doesn't matter much about your genetics your you know your social background your history this seven or eight year doubling in mortality actually applies across human populations across the world across the span of time and so you know given that our bodies go wrong in this synchronized way perhaps there's some underlying process well namely the aging process that causes that to happen and if we could understand and intervene in that process think of all the suffering we could avert right
0: from, from one 30-something-year-old to another, it's interesting. I was reading in your book and in articles that something happens. We see this in professional athletes between around 35 and 40, where there's a major decline physically in what the body's capable of. So there there are these kind of measured shifts that we see along the way, aren't there?
1: it's interesting yeah you can measure people's what's called biological age throughout their lives one of the most accurate measures is something called the epigenetic clock which uh, looks at little marks on your dna basically you can look at uh, all these different places that your dna is what's called methylated it's a way genes are turned on and off and this clock just ticks relentlessly so although you know we're not experiencing the sort of the hardcore frailty the cognitive decline the the serious illnesses of old uh, old age as in our 30s we're nonetheless aging in this much more subtle way and you know ways that can certainly be detected on a molecular level
0: so you've described being able to treat aging as as perhaps one of the greatest medical revolutions or the greatest medical revolution. Why, why do you frame it that way?
1: I really feel like we've got to uh, reimagine our approach to aging. And the reason for that is, I think a lot of us just think of it as this inevitable process. It's something that happens to us, it happens to our pets, it happens to our farm animals. It just seems to be something that inevitably happens to, you know, everybody we know, every everyone you know and care about throughout our lives. But actually, ageing is responsible for this enormous quantity of death and of suffering. So if you think about all the biggest killers in the modern world, things like cancer, things like heart disease, dementia, these things that can, you know, not only take your life uh, toward the end of your life, but they can also remove a lot of independence you know they can they can take away your ability to get around the house to do the tasks your hobbies that you want to you know get on with they can take away your ability to play with your grandkids this huge swathe of human suffering is essentially caused by the aging process and we're at this fascinating and exciting time in the sort of history of medicine where we're starting to get these hints that we can slow and even reverse the aging process in the lab we've got dozens of different ways that we can slow and reverse aging in cells in in worms in flies and even in mice which are obviously animals that aren't exactly the same as humans but are very very similar and what this does is it basically makes these animals younger for longer and you know puts off the frailty, puts off the cognitive decline, puts off these diseases all at the same time. And that's why I'm just so, so excited about this idea, because it's got such huge potential to make, to extend what's called health span, not just how long we live, but how healthy we live as well.
0: Right. but And I'm sure other people have, have, have asked you about this. Uh, the other way of thinking about growing older is it's, it's part of a natural cycle of life. I mean, how, how else do we die but, but we grow old and our bodies break down and we die? So, I mean, are, are we talking about disrupting what's being considered a natural process for as long as we've known of human existence?
1: it's funny that um i think a lot of people do think like that but actually the sort of current life expectancy of about 80 years in most rich countries in the world is a surprisingly recent phenomenon life expectancy even just a couple of hundred years ago is maybe 30 or 40 years old and that's because there were just huge huge numbers of infectious disease deaths uh, particularly in, in children and babies and what that meant was that there was only about a 50 50 chance of making your 20th birthday and if you then made it to twenty, you did have a reasonable chance of making it into what you know what these days we'd call quote unquote old age, maybe your fifties or sixties, perhaps even your seventies. But the fact is that the sort of natural order of things, even as recently as a couple of hundred years ago, was loads and loads of people this enormous, terrible toll of infectious disease. And now we've largely beaten that back. We've got this new, you know, seemingly natural frontier of aging. But actually, I think you know we're going to look back on this period of time, perhaps in a few hundred years, and we've we've cured all of this stuff, you know, without putting a hard timescale on exactly when we'll get it nailed. But I think once we've cured aging. That's something I talk about in the book. We're gonna see this as you know just as barbaric as the huge numbers of deaths from smallpox and TB seem to be, you know, to us looking back at the past.
0: That that's fascinating. And and I want to pause on this and, and give this some attention that, that you're right, right? I mean, that there was a period in time where uh you were likely to die by the time you were 30 or 40, just as you said. And we now have a whole new set of expectations for what qualifies as a long, full, rich life, and it's living till you're in your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. That's a modern conception of what it means to be a human. And so what you're saying is that in maybe 30 to 40 years from now, it's going to be normal to live to 120. Therefore, we have to kind of expand our idea of what it means to to live a long life or to live a normal life. Do I have that right?
1: I think that's exactly right, yeah, and it's, it's really interesting to sort of to, to look at what public opinion is on this. There are these surveys where they ask people, how long would you like to live? Yeah. And the answer that most people give is normally life expectancy in their country plus about 10 years. And that's because mm-hmm. you know everyone wants to have a good innings, you want to live a decent amount of time. But we, we've got this sort of normalised expectation about what life expectancy is at the moment. And that's just baffling to me, because life expectancy in the, the countries in the world that have the highest life expectancy has been going up by about three months per year every single year since Mm. the middle of the 19th century. So it's this absolutely phenomenal increase. You've gone from about, as I say, sort of 30 or 40 years old to 80 years old in much of the developed world. And what that means is that we've effectively doubled what it means to be human. And at the same time, we've all got this sort of mass normalisation of what the current number happens to be. Even if we just extrapolate that fairly you know, linear, continuous, incremental progress into the future, then kids born today are going to be easily living into their hundreds. And obviously, if we can come up with some more of the sort of exciting treatments for the actual biology of ageing that I talk about in the book, then you know, who knows what the upper limit is.
0: Yeah, and I want to get to the science and the biology in a minute, but I can't get away from some of these bigger philosophical questions, because this to me is really fascinating. And then it just, you know, if we if we play this out, though, and we say, okay, well, maybe someday we'll live to be 150, and that's normal. My sense is that this will never end. The age in which we live will just continuously be pushed further and further back.
1: And. I think that's right in a sense and that there's no obvious upper limit to human life expectancy if you think about it from a biological perspective. The reason there's a a turtle, a tortoise on the front of my book is because those are what's called biologically immortal organisms. Now, it's important to say they're not actually immortal. They don't live forever, but they have a risk of death that doesn't increase with time. Uh, The the Biological immortality is one word for it that's also the more sort of scientific word is negligible senescence. So senescence just being the scientific word for old. They've got a negligible growing old, basically. Mm. And that's, I think, something that we should be aiming for as humans human beings because that would you know be this huge eradication of disease of death of suffering of all of these terrible things i'm not necessarily going to say that's going to happen in our generation or the generation after us but it's certainly something that we should be aiming for as humans
0: Okay, well, I'm going to come back to some of these big questions because they're fascinating. But I I have to get to the science with you because this is something you spent so much time on. So let's break this down in the simplest possible ways. Why do we age? What's going on in our bodies that we start to get sick and old and we break down? What's
1: happening there? In the book, I break it down into 10 uh, what are called hallmarks of ageing. And actually, this is based very heavily on a 2013 scientific paper of the same name, which is one of the most highly cited scientific papers in the field of ageing biology. They actually had nine hallmarks but I shifted things around a bit, added an extra one, uh, various bits and bobs, and ended up with 10. And what these hallmarks are, they're basically the fundamental underlying biological driving forces behind ageing. So if you think of something like cancer or something like heart disease, or even just something like frailty or grey hair, these are the end stages of ageing. They're almost, if you think of ageing as as a disease, which some people do, I'm not so sure, but if you think of it as a disease, they're the symptoms of ageing. What we want to know about are the causes, and the causes are, you know, everything from the smallest to the largest scales in your body. On the very, very small scale, as you go through your life, your DNA, the genetic instruction manual at the centre of every one of your cells, can accumulate damage. And as it accumulates damage, those that can turn into mutations, and that can cause your cells to misbehave scaling up a little bit, those kinds of effects can cause the cells themselves to age. There's something called a senescent cell, which is a cell that's basically itself old. I said earlier that senescence is the scientific word for ageing. And then on an even larger scale still, there can be dysfunction in whole systems. So caused by these sort of smaller scale changes. And I think a really important one is dysfunction of the immune system. And that's because the immune system, obviously we've all had a very painful reminder in the last sort of year, year and a half or so of just how much the ageing of the immune system can affect people Mm -hmm. with the coronavirus pandemic. Because if you catch COVID in your 80s, at least before most of us were thankfully vaccinated for it um, then you are literally hundreds of times more likely to die than someone who caught covid in their 20s or their 30s and that's in large part because of the dysfunction of the immune system and that actually has knock-on effects around the whole aging process it affects all different parts of our body and so it's this combination of different factors it's no individual single thing uh, at least it doesn't seem to be but that just sort of combines together to cause everything from cancer to heart disease to wrinkles and gray hair
0: Let's talk about one way in which scientists are, are working on this question of aging. Can you talk about what, how they're targeting parts of the body or the way our system works?
1: I think the most exciting intervention that I've read about that's uh, th- thankfully for radio interviews is also the easiest to explain is the targeting of something I've already mentioned, these things called senescent cells. These are cells that, you know, one of the ways they can become senescent, I've already alluded to, they can get damaged to their DNA, and that can mean that the body effectively slams on the brakes and tells them to stop dividing. Uh, Another thing that can happen is they just divide too many times. So our cells are constantly dividing in our body. Places like our skin and our intestines are being refreshed every few days sometimes. what that means is that constant division will eventually, again, the body just slams on the brakes. And both of these are because um, the the, the body's basically protecting against the risk of cancer. Because what is cancer? It's a cell that gains the ability to divide an infinite number of times and the way it gets that is mutations to its dna so if you've got a lot of mutations or you've divided suspiciously many times it's better to stop you dividing and what would happen in a young person is that the immune system comes and clears up these aged cells and basically there's no problem but as you get older you get more dna damage your cells are divided more times and we've already mentioned your immune system is getting less effective and so what that means is that you start to accumulate these cells. And these cells are thought to be a smoking gun, uh, often found at the site of a whole different, whole range of different age-related problems. And this can be from you know, cancer to heart disease to cataracts. And so the idea is that we can get something called a senolytic drug, which is a drug that specifically kills the senescent cells while leaving the rest of the cells in the body intact. And what scientists have done is they've, uh, they've designed these drugs. They've given them to mice aged about 24 months. Now, mice have a much shorter lifespan than humans. So 24 months is about 70 in human years. So that means that, you know, they're given them to mice who are pretty old. They've accumulated a lot of these senescent cells. And if you clear out those senescent cells, it seems to basically make them biologically younger. They live a little bit longer, which I guess is a good start. But they don't just live longer, sort of in geriatric ill health, staggering on, you know, somehow unable to muster the energy even to die having had these cells cleared out. They're uh, protected from a whole range of diseases, from things like cancer and heart disease, uh, from cataracts, I also mentioned, from arthritis, all kinds of different things. Um, and it's not just the diseases. These mice, uh, they're less frail. They can run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill that they use in these experiments. Um, they're more curious. So if you get a mouse that's been treated with these analytic drugs and put it into a new environment like a maze, it'll behave more like a young mouse. It's more curious. It'll try and you know uh, explore its new environment, where an old mouse might be uh, more anxious and you know, less willing to explore. And honestly, you know, these animals, they just look great. I was a computational biologist. which means I didn't directly deal with mice in the lab. But, you know, even to my untrained eye, these animals, they just look fantastic. They've got better fur. They've got thicker, plumper skin. Um, and so what this really shows us is that these senescent cells are behind a whole range of different problems in aging, from, you know, very serious diseases to things that kill the mice to the sort of more cosmetic features, you know, effectively the wrinkles and gray hair of the mouse world. And so the dream would be, can we get some of these drugs, give them to people, and stop them from getting old, stop them from getting ill in the first place.
0: How far away is a drug like that from making its way into mainstream medicine?
1: One of the reasons this is so exciting is the answer is not very far. Mm. And the reason for that is we've already got 20 or 30 companies that are trying to turn this from, you know, something that works in mice in the lab to something that works in the clinic in people. And the way this is going to happen at first is these companies are primarily targeting Uh, diseases where we know that these aged senescent cells are a specific problem and these are things like lung fibrosis which is a disease that you very commonly get in old age and we know that these senescent cells are often found hanging around at, at the you know at the site of this disease However, if these treatments prove effective, you know, they you know, sort out the problem, but more importantly, if they prove safe, then we could imagine starting to roll them out into people preventatively, because the most important thing is that these drugs don't have any severe side effects, because if you're going to give them to, you know, people who are quote-unquote healthy at the moment, the only thing that's wrong with them is they're, you know, maybe they're 50 or 60 years old and they've accumulated a lot of senescent cells, you want to make sure this drug isn't going to do anything bad to them at the same time as preventing those diseases. But, you know, the first clinical trial started in 2018. These, there are a lot of these trials ongoing now, It could only be a few years before we're starting to see these in the clinic for specific conditions. And then it's just a matter of, you know, how safe are they? How effective are they? How confident are we to give them out to the general population? It could certainly be something that happens in the next 10 years. This isn't, you know, pie in the sky theoretical biology.
0: And do you think these, like this type of medicine, will be distributed and marketed under this idea of live longer, take this drug, or, or are these kind of targeted for people that could be at serious risk of disease? Like, I, I just like wonder how this is all going to be rolled out culturally to us.
1: I think it's going to be, again, a revolution in slow motion where it's going to be hard to, you know, draw a specific line and say, you know, suddenly we're, we're using these drugs against ageing rather than against diseases. What's going to happen is, as I say, they'll start out in these, these serious diseases. So lung fibrosis is, is a problem that hasn't really got any uh, significant existing treatments. And the prognosis is basically a one-way street. You know, you're going to get worse as, as this disease progresses. And so, you know, people with those kinds of conditions are willing to take a bit of a punt on a new therapy. But senescent cells are just implicated all over the place. So it might then be that, you know, if they do prove safe in that population you might say okay well something like cardiovascular disease is clearly driven by senescent cells as well so perhaps we'll give it to people who've got high blood cholesterol or other factors that predispose them to heart problems and then if it's safe and effective in that sort of broader population you're then just going to see it getting rolled out more and more widely and actually this isn't such a sort of out there idea we already have preventative drugs things like statins and you know some people take a baby aspirin for example on a regular basis to try and you know stave off various health problems so i think it's just going to sort of slowly work its way in almost invisibly and yet it's going to be this absolutely massive revolution at the same time.
0: So we've talked about how, how to approach these senescent cells. I wonder if you could also just talk about some other interesting research out there. I, I realize it might be harder to describe, but maybe you could even pick a scientist that you met that's doing really fascinating work. I mean, bring us into a, another area of research here that we may see, even if it's not anytime soon, in the near future at least.
1: I think one of the most fascinating slightly longer term areas of research is an idea called cellular reprogramming. So this was actually first discovered in 2007 and since uh, got the Nobel Prize. This is a process by which you can take a cell from you know your body or my body or even the body of someone you know who's 100 years old. You can insert a cocktail of four different genes and you can effectively turn back time in these cells. You can turn them into something called an induced pluripotent stem cell. And that means it's a pluripotent stem cell, it's just one that can turn into any other kind of cell. They're the cells that are normally found in the very earliest developmental stages of a human embryo, which then go on to form you know, basically any tissue in the whole body. And this was really exciting because scientists were thinking, you know, we can use these things to generate any kind of cell that we like and potentially use it for stem cell therapy. However, what's been noticed is that not only do these... um. not not only do these four genes turn back the developmental clock and create these sort of pluripotent stem cells they also seem to turn back the aging clock inside those cells as well so i mentioned the epigenetic clock earlier that Mm. seems to be reversed by applying these four genes and that's all very well and good, being able to turn back time in a single cell. But what's really exciting is that you can actually turn back time in whole animals as well. So scientists have found that if you uh, create, insert these genes into a mouse in such a way as you can turn them on and off at will, if you basically turn them on for two days a week and then give them five days off, that's just enough that you don't turn the cells all the way back into this pluripotent state, but you do reverse the aging a little bit. And it seems to have health benefits and actually a particularly exciting recent study looked at the optic nerve in the back of a mouse's eye and they took these year-old mice and they damaged the optic nerve now this is a part of your body that normally has almost no regenerative capacity apart from when you're you know basically still in the womb so if you get damaged your optic nerve oh, sorry if you get damaged your optic nerve and you- if you become blind as a result then that basically is irreversible you know you're stuck with that that loss of sight but they found that by introducing these four genes these pluripotency factors they could allow that optic nerve to regenerate they could turn it back into an earlier developmental stage and this uh, you know it's a bit further into the future we're not going to be injecting these genes into humans anytime soon but part of me just feels like this is an incredible technology that feels like it's fallen through a wormhole from the future because you know when scientists were looking to try and produce these induced pluripotent stem cells they weren't trying to come up with a way to turn back the aging clock they were looking for a way to turn back the developmental clock and create any kind of cell they wanted but just as a strange side effect it appears to have this impact on aging and it just appears you know so universal it can work in any cell type that you know perhaps this could be something that could be a real way to unlock a huge amount of biological youthfulness once we can work out how to get it working safely in people
0: let's imagine what this what this world could be like in 200 years if suddenly uh humans are living to be 150 And I know you've had to field this question, but we live in a world of a quickly changing climate. Um, We wonder how that's going to impact food resources, how it's going to impact the migration of peoples across the globe. And suddenly, if we're looking at lifespans that go way up, how is this going to change global dynamics in terms of what it means to be a human on this planet and whether things are going to get a lot worse as a result?
1: I do take this question very seriously, actually. I I nearly, in my sort of career change moment at the end of my PhD, became a climate scientist precisely because Mm. I'm worried about all of this, all all of the intense pressure we're putting on our planet in a variety of different ways. Um, And this... Uh, as you sort of implied is the most common question I get and it's normally phrased as what about overpopulation mm. and the first uh, problem that I have with that sort of framing of the question is I think overpopulation puts the onus on the people when actually the problem is the resources that we use and particularly the resources the richest of us in the world use so the richest billion or so people in the world use more than half of the world's carbon dioxide Um, they and, and also you know if you, if you look at land use if you look at other kinds of pollution it's overwhelmingly those of us with these you know massive rich frankly extravagant on a global scale lifestyles that are driving that uh, that um, that sort of you know the decimation of the environment of our planet. So the first thing is if we want to extend out that sort of quality of life that western people enjoy to everyone in the world then what we're going to have to do is massively reduce the footprint of that lifestyle on the planet because there's no other way that we can bring the other 6 billion you know 7 billion people up to that western standard of living without causing untold environmental destruction. So the first thing to say is this is a problem we're going to have to solve anyway. The second and more practical answer is that actually curing aging even curing aging wouldn't make as big a difference to population as you expect and that's because the biggest driver of population growth isn't death or you know if you turn it off lack of death but birth because every time you know someone gives birth to more than two children that therefore expands the population they it's it's an exponential growth process basically And so I tried to uh, do some basic calculations to work out what would happen to population if we literally cancelled death in the year 2025. And I think that's an optimistic timeline, because not Mm -hmm. only would we have to develop all of these therapies in that time, we'd have to roll them out globally as well. So as I say, uh, optimistic. But if you're a population pessimist, that's sort of the worst case scenario. And what happens is that by 2050, the current projection is that the world's population will be about 9.8 billion people. But if you literally turn off death in a few years' time, then that population goes up to about 11.6 or 11.7 billion. That's not nothing. It's 20% larger. But then you've got to think about what's on the other side of the equation. We'd be potentially eradicating the world's largest cause of death and suffering, which is the case I you know, made, made a bit earlier in our chat. Um, and you know, if that means I'm going to have to work 20% harder to solve environmental problems, that's a trade-off I would very, very happily make. So I think the most important thing to remember with all of these ethical questions is always that if you're going to make an argument against treating ageing medically, your argument has to be bigger than the two-thirds of deaths that are currently caused by ageing. And that amount is obviously increasing as the global population is. And all those decades of suffering that billions of people are going to have to go to before they get to those deaths. And it's only when you've got problems on that kind of scale that you can seriously consider, you know, stopping research into ageing biology to try and solve them.
0: Hmm. What about, you know, but the cost on on society of uh, of older people living much longer for example and needing much more care and maybe not being a part of the workforce i mean there's other kind of economic implications in this as well right
1: i think actually it's um it's, it's quite the reverse the reason being that we wouldn't be expecting when we develop these treatments for people to have an extended period of disability and dysfunction mm. and, you know needing to be in care because the fact is and you know from a theoretical point of view what is it that kills you well, it's being ill, it's being frail, it's being in a state where your body is susceptible to insults, you know, whether that can be a fall or whether it can be coronavirus. And so the idea is very much that all of these therapies would extend health span as well as lifespan. And that means a smaller fraction of your life spent in disability. If you want to be a bit less theoretical about it, if you look at centenarians, so people who make it to the age of hundred, so you know people who have got exceptional longevity for the current sort of uh, limits of life expectancy, those people tend to be unhealthy for about the same number of years at the end of their life as someone who only makes it to eighty. So mm. therefore, as a fraction of their life, they spend less time in ill health. So I really think you know this isn't some some wild projection. This is very much what we'd expect to happen. So I, I think it'll be incredibly sort of you'd have to be incredibly almost clever as a scientist to design a treatment that could somehow. keep someone alive in some terrible you know frail state that requires a load of care because it's being frail that kills you
0: Mm. so in many ways you're you're kind of describing aging as a humanitarian issue right
1: yeah and i think that's the that's the right way to think about it because as i've as i've said it's it's responsible for two-thirds of deaths and the ways in which you die of aging they're they're drawn out they're slow they're painful if you think about something like heart disease you know you don't just go to bed one night and then not wake up the next morning your heart function slowly reduces and you know you can't eventually get out of the house or you can't play with your grandkids or you can't get on with your hobbies and so on and so on and that slowly you know takes a cost on yourself it takes a cost on your loved ones those who have to care for you it's got this huge economic cost for society because we have to pay for care because we have to you know pay pensions and so on So it really is this enormous humanitarian issue. And it's not just the diseases either. I think this is something that's very hard to convey statistically because it's sort of uh, it's, it can be quite ephemeral but you know we can talk about death that's very easy to quantify diseases and diagnoses are a little bit more muddy because sometimes the, the ways in which we diagnose things the sort of the, the classifications can change over time and then there's the frailty you know the loss of muscle strength the cognitive decline that isn't quite bad enough to call dementia the hearing loss the sight loss all of these things that isolate you socially but aren't necessarily you know a quote unquote medical problem so it's just this absolutely huge issue that encompasses the whole of society and I, I really do see it as a humanitarian problem mm.
0: Well, I, I wonder if you have any final thoughts on, you know, as a society, how we treat the aging population. Um, you know, th- there is this thought that th- we are kind of a youth crazed society and that, that the elders get, get kind of pushed to the fringes. What, what, do, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think there's a lot to unpack there. And there's a sort of uh, something that I don't directly address in many places in the book, but it's a real sort of social undercurrent is this uh, this implicit ageism that we all have. Mm. I think a really great example of this is the fact that old people are very rarely included in clinical trials. This is sort of a scientific microcosm of the broader social issue. So imagine you're a drug company looking to trial a new heart disease drug. It's really, really common to trial it in a bunch of young men. And you know, so not not even just young people, but a very specific population, the male population as well. And that's because it can often give you cleaner results because you know perhaps these young men who you're trying in have the specific heart problem that your uh, drug is targeting and they don't have the other range of health issues that come with ageing, you know things like maybe diabetes or pre-diabetes, cognitive decline, other heart problems that might sort of play in and interact. Then there's the drugs that they're taking or rather not taking because if you're an older person, the average 80-year-old is taking five different me- prescription medications. And what that means is that you know your drug, your new drug that you're testing might interact with those medications in confusing ways. So it's much cleaner from a pharmaceutical company point of view to to get these results in younger people but the fact is that then most of the consumers of that drug might well be older people and that means that we haven't tested the drug in the population who are going to be benefiting most from it Mm. and the reasons for this as i've sort of alluded to the idea that the I've, i've sort of sorry sorry again I've just explained why that might be sort of cleaner from a clinical trial perspective but there are also all these logistical problems like it's expensive to provide taxis or you know go and give people these drugs at home where they might need to have them if they're older because they can't get to the hospital or the clinic where you're doing the trial and so on and so there are just so many little ways in which we neglect old people in which we sort of sideline them so much of this uh the sort of healthcare stuff is done in hospitals or in hospices or in you know uh, elderly care homes behind closed doors in ways that those of us who are young don't have to interact with and I think it's so easy to go through the first four five even six decades of your life without having to properly confront what aging is and many of us you know first experience that when our own parents start to age because the average age of somebody caring for someone over the age of 65 is 63 themselves so that's a lot of spouses looking after their, uh, their partners it's a lot of you know kids looking after their parents it's not a lot of people our age looking after their parents or grandparents and so you can just sort of sleepwalk through this for so so long and it is very sidelined our society is very obsessed with youth and it ultimately manifests this incredible ageism where sometimes we're not so interested in developing drugs to keep older people alive because, you know, they've had a good innings. They've had their life. They should be making space for everybody else. And I just don't think that's the right way to be thinking about it at all.
0: I've been speaking with Andrew Steele, scientist, journalist, and author of Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Andrew, th- thanks for this fascinating conversation. We appreciate the time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: We'll be back with Life Examined after this short break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Andrew Steele describe aging as a humanitarian issue. The loss of mobility, cognitive decline, and other age-related medical conditions cause tremendous frustration, pain, and suffering. So is there a way to age successfully or gracefully? Can perspective, tolerance, faith, and empathy help as we age? According to our next guest, those traits all factor into the notion of becoming wise and that wisdom could be a key to thriving in our later years. Monica Ardelt is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Florida and a founding faculty member of the advisory committee of the Center for Spirituality and Health at the University of Florida. Monica Ardelt, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you've done a lot of research into questions of aging and in particular, you've looked at this question of wisdom, which I I don't know, is a word I feel that we don't use that much really, but rather read about in great books or religious texts. So how how would you define wisdom?
2: So if you think about wisdom, if many people think about wisdom, you know, wise people, what is it that makes people wise? And what comes to mind is often that they know something. Mm. They know something that other peoples do not know, but but what do they know? It's not that they know the latest uh, research on quantum physics or something. What they do know is they understand life deeply, and that means they understand themselves, and they understand the deeper purpose of life, meaning and purpose of life, and they understand how to interact with other people. and. I, I think to get to this kind of deeper understanding requires the reflective dimension of wisdom. And the reflective dimension just means um, perceiving phenomena and events from different perspectives, including oneself. So being able to look at oneself from a kind of uh, an objective point of view, so outside yourself, so, so second-person point of view, what sometimes people say, And then to observe yourself and to 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 judge oneself, not in a in a negative way, but just, you know, looking at oneself and say, oh, I realize that I also have certain negative characteristics, which some not so wise people might project on other people. Hmm. Um, And so by by realizing this and accepting this, the ego deflates so this you know self-centeredness decreases which makes people more tolerant toward other people who have the same negative characteristics mm-hmm. and that increases greater sympathy and compassion for others which is the compassionate dimensions of wisdom and i think all three all three dimensions are necessary but I also, I would also argue they are also sufficient for a person to be considered wise.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you give me like an example of somebody who might go through this um, and how that, how that reflection would work? Like something kind of specific?
2: So, for example, I interviewed people who were rated um, highly on wisdom and also scored highly on uh, the three-dimensional wisdom scale that I developed. And what you saw with these people, the question was how do they deal with crises and obstacles in their lives? And so I asked them questions like, um, you know, what was the best thing that happened in your life the last week? And then what was the worst thing that happened in your life the last week, months, year, and over your whole life? And um, I wasn't really interested in the positive aspects, but you can't just ask about the negative things, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and one of the things that, that came out from the from these three exemplars of wise people was that when they talked about positive things, for example, they, they always referred to other people. So, for example, one of the positive things was that um, my son got a new job. Or, you know, a, a friend had a birthday. Mm-hmm. There's the not so wise people talked about their own pleasures, which is not surprising. Most people probably would, right? But it was remarkable that the wise people talked about the, um, the good things about others. And then when, when it came about asking, how did these people cope with crises and obstacles in their life? The first thing what they did was they took a step back, you know, to basically reflect on the situation and see, okay, what's going on here, and also to calm down, no, not to get too emotional, evolved in a negative event. So taking a, a step back to relax, to calm down, surveying the situation from different perspectives. What can I do in this situation? Um, somebody might have done some bad thing to me. Um, Well, what was it about this person? So, because of this, um, wise people learn important life lessons throughout their life, which then helps them in old age when difficulties might be piling up through, through, um, because of losses, physical losses, social losses, economic losses, and they have already practiced Dealing with crises and obstacles earlier in life. And so it's just then, well, it's just another crisis and they deal with it in the kind of in the same way.
0: Do you think that all people grow wise in their lives or, or people as they age grow wise or, or is it is it not the case? There are no, certain, you know.
2: It's, it's not the case, unfortunately, because growing wiser actually requires, first of all, the motivation to grow wiser, and not everybody has the motivation to grow wiser. It also requires a reduction of self-centeredness, and if people believe that they are number one, and they should stay number one, and that's the most important part, then no, they will not grow wiser. So. It's it's actually quite rare that people to find really wise older adults. Um, in the past, we would connect wisdom with older age, and it might have been that only the wise survived that long. Mm. Uh, now, I, I I don't think that's that's really the case. Um, so it is really a desire and a motivation to grow wiser that makes people wiser and and also to do the um the work to mm. um become less less self-centered more compassionate and to trying to understand what what is this life all about why am i here you know what's mm-hmm. the purpose of me living here
0: yeah well for for those that that have been able to cultivate this and, and as they grow older and, and, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but as they see their bodies break down, as they see their friends and their family members die, talk to me about the importance of wisdom in, in that phase of life. How, yeah. how can it be so important?
2: It, is, it changes your outlook on life. It changes your plans and, um, and being able to adapt being able to change directions, mm. I think, is really important for wise people. If you take, um, if you take disability or illness, um, it's it's difficult for people who are disabled or or ill, and often this is where the movement comes in. Um, you know, physician assisted death that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm either healthy or, you know, just kill me now. Um, but that often doesn't happen. So being able to um, deal with with um, chronic illness, disability, is it's difficult. It's very difficult. Now, I should say it would be, of course, also easier if we had a community that um, helps with that. Um, and even so, wise people can adapt to that. Um, if you have a society that f- views illness, disability as an individual problem, it's it's much harder than if you have a society that steps in if people get older and um, help you out. In America, unfortunately, um, if you get disabled or ill and you don't have people who take care of you, the only recourse is to go to a nursing home. And a nursing mm-hmm. home is right now the way they are. Unless you have a lot of money, it's very expensive and it's not a nice place to be. I've interviewed people in a nursing home and I have to say I was mm, always glad when I could leave again. Mm-hmm. And these people have to live there. Um, it, I mean... Other countries, I'm from Germany, our nursing homes are much nicer, quite frankly. Um, Hmm. You don't have to share a bed, and uh, the rooms are nicer, really nicer, rather than here. Like one lady said, it's like death row. You know, the only way you get out of Mm, here is you die. Um, So having, having societal support, I think, helps a lot as well. But then, in terms of you know having your loved ones die, a wise person knows. And, and, I, and again, I have to kind of refer to one of my wisdom exemplars. Uh, when his mother died, he was grieving very, very heavily, and and then he said, "I realized, hey, you know, um, what are you crying about? You know, mother, and and she was old when she died. Mother is at peace." You know, and she, he was also very religious. You know, he said, You know, mother is at peace. You know, she's with God. What are you crying about? You're crying about yourself. You miss her. You're crying about yourself, but you're not crying for mother. You know, and so by realizing this, you know, that he was really crying for himself, you know, he could accept this and he could actually be um, glad that his mother was at peace and that. Uh, lessened his grief and and increased his acceptance um, of her death yeah. and so he could could overcome the the really the negative grief he was feeling and could actually develop it into a more positive feeling that his mother now was at peace
0: mm-hmm Well, the the traits you're talking about when it comes to wisdom are things like um, an egoless way of being, um, a compassionate or empathetic way of being, one in which a person can have a a deeper and richer perspective on life. And these are traits that I think we also see in a lot of the great world religions as well. And and, and I wonder for you, when you've done your studies— Have you noted that people of faith or people with a rich spiritual uh, practice tend to grow wiser as they age because these ideas are so embedded in, in their practices?
2: That is a very wonderful question, and I had exactly the same question. So... I was looking um, in one of my studies. I, um, I, w- I gave them um, not just my wisdom scale but also a religious questionnaire. And this questionnaire distinguished between an extrinsic and an uh, an intrinsic and extrinsic religious orientation. So an extrinsic religious orientation is if people use their religion for extrinsic purposes. It's a scale developed by Alpert and Ross a long time ago in the 50s when they were looking at uh, religion and prejudice, actually. And um, so using your religion for extrinsic purposes that could be to to find community, to increase your standing in the community, to, um, to find solace in time of hardship, or just you know go for the donuts after the service. Mm. Um, whereas people who have an intrinsic religious orientation, they actually live their religion. They have dedicated their life to God or a higher power, and they try to become um, better people through their religion. So now, interestingly, what I found was there was no, no, no relationship between my um, wisdom scale and an intrinsic religious orientation. So what mm. does this mean? Well, it basically means that people can be wise and not necessarily be religious. Um, I had one person that I interviewed that was, we uh, had a relatively high score on the wisdom scale, but well, he, was, he was a scientist and he could not bring himself to believe in, the, in, in religion.
0: Uh-huh.
2: He's, he, he was um, raised at the Catholic and Catholic schools, and he said, you know, even, even, even in elementary school, when I heard about these stories, these were more like fairy tales to me. Virgin mm-hmm. birth, you know, uh, a raising of the dead. I mean, fairy tales. I just couldn't bring myself to believe in this. And so he wasn't religious, but he had a humanistic outlook. And so this is what wise people who are not religious they are typically humanistic so meaning that yes I cannot believe in a higher power so that there is anything beyond this world because it just isn't logical it just doesn't make sense to me but that doesn't prevent me from being compassionate toward other people or trying to do the best I can to relieve suffering in this world Hmm. whereas other people who can be very religious. I had a person who was very religious, and he said, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ and the Lord, and I know the Lord will save me. Um, and I know, I sh- I, you know, my religion tells me, you know, I, I, sh- I, sh- I shouldn't drink, I sh- you know, and I shouldn't have sexual relation outside of marriage, but I do drink, and I do have... Uh, a lot of girlfriends, uh-huh. and so <laughs> <laughs> he knew what he needed to do, but yeah, you know, he just had a hard time doing it. And but he was not worried because you know Jesus loves me and Jesus will save me. Mm. So in some kind, it's an it's an it's an understanding of religion that yeah, I'm saved, but mm, can't I can't quite do what my religion asks me to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and then, however, I also looked at the relationship between extrinsic religious orientation and wisdom, and that was negative. So, um, so that means that wise people do not, do not engage in, an, in a, a negative, uh, in, an, in an extrinsic religious orientation, um, to just to use their religion for extrinsic purposes, if they are religious. And there are wise people, many wise people that are religious. If they are religious, then they really have dedicated their life to God or a higher power.
0: Well, so it makes me wonder here, as as someone ages, or for those that are aging now or listening, and they're asking themselves, how, how do I learn to, to take on these characteristics of wisdom as I age, to accept things as they are, how, how, does, one, how does one cultivate those aspects and themselves.
2: Yes, that's that's again a very good question. Um, the psychologist Pascal Leona um, wrote an article and basically says there are so two pathways to wisdom. And one pathway, and a lot of people have uh, studied this, is through um, learning important life lessons and becoming wiser uh, through what he calls ultimate limit situation. So these are are crises and obstacles and hardships that people encounter that kind of shake the whole system and um, might question their values, their priorities, and then lead to stress-related growth. So, mm. so, uh, so, a major illness might do it, the death of a mm. loved one might do it. So, it really shakes the foundation of people's beliefs or values and question, well, what, what is this all about? So, for example, if I know that I'm mortal and people know intellectually that they are mortal, but often don't really understand what this, uh, what this means. Therefore, uh, you know, the, the quest for immortality um, and longevity. But what it means, what does it mean if I am mortal and everybody else is mortal, how should I live my life accordingly so that it, is that so that it has any kind of meaning mm-hmm. for myself and others? And these ultimate limit situations might do this and by rearranging priorities, by saying, well, you know, maybe it isn't just about material things and money and to earn as much as possible and to buy as many things as possible or to buy better things or more luxurious things or whatever. Maybe it is it's, it's more about having good relationships with other people. Um, and and having a job that is meaningful for me and not just that earns me the highest amount of money. It's a job that actually maybe gives back to the community. And through that process, people experience what has been called stress-related growth or um, uh, post-traumatic growth and that can lead to greater wisdom. Now, that's a hard path to take, right? The other path that Pascal Leone suggests is through meditation. Mm. you know meditation helps to um, uh, to engage in this self-reflection and self-examination and to realize maybe what are the important things in life and to realize what I said earlier that um, yes, you know, I have negative uh, characteristics, just like other people, which makes me then more tolerant toward other people's negative characteristics, and uh, I can develop greater sympathy and compassion for others. Mm. So these two pathways, meditation or learning from our experiences, and I would deviate from Pascal in this a little bit. I think we can learn from all experiences. Um, so, wisdom comes through experience, that has often been said. But I think just having the experience, we all have experiences, of course, but just having the experiences is not enough. The key is to learn from experiences. And, mm-hmm. that, c- th- of course, these are these big ultimate limit situations, but I mean, you can learn from somebody cuts you off in traffic and learning not to react with anger and aggravation, but just to let it go, just to let it go, you know, what um, some people say, you know, take the low-hanging fruit first, Right. you know, learn from that first, because it might be easier than with the big situations. Right.
0: I've been speaking with Monica Ardeltz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Florida. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your research with us. We appreciate the time.
2: You're very welcome.
0: Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to read your review. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash life examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.